Hi, guys. Here's a question for you. Have you ever had an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with somebody, share the gospel with somebody, to explain why God is making such a difference in your life and completely blew the opportunity? <laughs> if you're like me, you walk away from a from an encounter with somebody and you go, oh my goodness, it was like the Holy Spirit just invited me to talk with this person and I was like, no thanks, and I, I missed it. And then I kicked myself and I have to confess and all of that kind of stuff. Um, probably the most famous case of that happening is recorded in the Gospels. Um, you find it in all the Gospels, but in Mark chapter 14, it talks about this where where um, Jesus has been taken into custody. Now, Peter had already told him, listen, there is nothing they can do that would make me run away from you. There is nothing they could do that would make me turn away. There's nothing they could do that would make me deny you. In fact, if they come for you, they're gonna have to go through me. It will be only over my dead body that they take you into custody. And then he fought for a second and then Jesus told him to put his sword down, and he ran. Then he shows up in the courtyard outside of where Jesus is on trial, and they begin to question him. They begin to ask him, hey, aren't you one of those Jesus guys? Didn't we see you with him? And everybody starts murmuring and stirring, and he goes, no, 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 that wasn't me. I, I never met the guy. And then somebody else says, no, but wait a second. Um, I recognize you. I remember you were with him. And he goes, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. It must be somebody who looks like me. It's not me. I don't know the guy. And then somebody else says, no, no, no. I recognize your accent. You're from Galilee. You're one of those fishermen that travels with him. We've seen you all around. And he begins to curse and shout and says, I'm telling you, I've never met him. And as he is saying, I'm telling you, I've never met him, he looks up and Jesus is being led through the courtyard at that very moment, locks eyes with him, and the rooster crows. The scripture says that Peter began to weep bitterly and ran away. And as far as we know, if we haven't read beyond that point, that should be the moment Peter exits the story. We already saw one disciple turn on him. We already saw one disciple deny him. And that disciple ends up killing himself. We see Peter run off the stage, so to speak, in tears. And we think, well, that's the end of Peter. But then in John 21, after the resurrection takes place, they're sitting there by the, by the side of the sea, Jesus and Peter, and they have this moment where after denying him three times, Jesus gives him an opportunity to say that he loves him. He says, do you love me? He goes, of course I love you. He says, no, but do you, do you love me? He goes, yes, I love you. He goes, no, seriously, do you actually love me? And he goes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus basically looks at him and says, you know what, I've got a ministry for you, brother. You're restored. To, to, to be in that place where he's at his lowest point knowing he had been unfaithful to Jesus and then to be restored. That, my friends, is the background for the passage we're gonna look at today in 1 Peter 
chapter 3. Because it's now 30 years later. Peter is writing this letter. And in 30 years, he has learned a thing or two. He now understands the importance of being able to simply tell people the truth about Jesus, especially if they ask about what he's done for us, about his invitation to give us new life, about the hope that we have in him. And it's like as Peter's writing this letter, I can just picture him. He can't wait to get to this section in the middle where he's going to tell us the lesson that he learned from his own failure so that we don't have to make the same mistake that he made. Now, we've been studying 1 Peter, if you, if you haven't been with us, uh, he, he's been talking to us about this issue of submissiveness, and he's even been talking to us about the fact that we may have to suffer as Christians, so we've been learning about submissiveness and suffering, and he even goes so far as to say, in fact, your example that you need to follow is Jesus, who submissively suffered even to the point of death on a cross. And that's our example. Through the unjust criticism that he received throughout his life, Jesus submitted. Why? For us. When he endured the illegal mock trials, he did it for us. When he was whipped and beaten and spat upon, he did it for us. And when he ultimately laid down his life for us, only to take it up again on the third day. And after explaining all of that, Peter tells us what to do instead of folding under the pressure when we have opportunity to talk to people about the grace of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't already turned there, I want to invite you to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, 1 Peter's toward the very back of your Bible. If you're not familiar with your Bible, go to the book of Revelation and go left a few pages. You'll find 1 Peter. And we're going to pick it up in verse 13, and here's what he says. After all this talk about suffering and submission and following the example of Jesus in those things, here's what he says. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The story of Jesus is a story that resonates with the human heart. See, God created us and wired our minds and wired our hearts in such a way that as the gospel unfolded and people will hear that message over the generations, it will be the message that our heart goes, yes, that makes sense. Yes, that's right. It, it, th- this story, the, the gospel has been, has been uh, copied and, and it's been uh, reworked uh, in, in fiction over and over again because it's a story that resonates. So novelists take the story, they change the characters, they change the details, they change the dates, but they tell you the basically same story and we love those books. And filmmakers do the same thing and we love those movies. Every little girl's heart sings when she hears the story of Snow White where there's this pristine, wonderful young girl who is encountered by evil. And the evil tempter tempts her with fruit. 
and says, hey, why don't you eat this fruit? It'll be great for you. She believes the lie, eats the fruit, and comes under a curse. Is any of this sounding familiar? She comes under a curse that basically takes her life away, and so now she's in this suspended animation, this coma, if you will, where she's alive but not living, right? Until a prince comes, and his perfect love wakes her up from the curse, and she's given new life. That story sound familiar to anybody? Or every, every little boy fascinated with the story of Superman. Sent by his father from another realm to save the people of earth. Not subject to the laws of nature, but able to operate outside of those laws when necessary. He looks like one of us, but he's actually much more, right? Able to, able to uh, leap tall buildings with a single bound. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. Able to calm the raging seas with just a word. To heal the sick, to raise the dead. And Superman can't be killed. Well, there's this one time he gets killed, but, <laughs> but then what happens? He raises again. Does this sound familiar? See, these stories resonate with our heart, and I could, I could do 50 more movies. I, I, I'm like a trivia guy with this. Uh, every movie I watch, I'm like, oh, look, there's the Jesus story. There's the Jesus story. Every book I read, oh, look, that guy's like Jesus, right? Because this story resonates with us. And God created us to long for the truth of this story. Now, just imagine when Superman is walking around as Clark Kent. He's got his dumb glasses. He looks all nerdy. And he's walking down the streets of Metropolis. Do you think he ever thinks, man, I hope I don't get mugged? I think not, right? So those are comic books. Those are cartoons. Let's get beyond comic books, and let's get back to the real story. If you know that you have a personal relationship with God, the God of the universe, the one who has all power, and he promised to never leave you or forsake you, if you know that your sins have been forgiven and our two greatest enemies, the grave and sin, have been defeated by Jesus, if you have this undeniable hope of eternal life that guides you in your life, then what on earth do you have to be afraid of? I'm saying nothing. Back to verse 13, who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. It reminds me of Psalm 23. <clears throat> when the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. When we walk with God, fear has no place. So he says, do not fear them or their intimidations. 
My friends, this world can throw a lot of stuff at us, amen? Amen. A lot of stuff. In fact, Peter tells us that we are going to have to endure some very serious storms in this life and that following Jesus doesn't get you out of that. In fact, following Jesus puts you into some specific storms and he warns us about that. But he also tells us not to be, inf- not to be afraid and not to be intimidated by all of that. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be knocked off course by those, those temporary challenges that we face. So what do we do instead? We need to prove zealous for what is good. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, zealous is not a word we use every day. So let's uh, kind of define this Bible-sounding word. The word zealous is based on the, the root word zeal. And to have zeal is to be incredibly passionate about something to the point that you will not be dissuaded about what is driving you. So in the time of Jesus, there was an entire sort of political religious group called the Zealots, and their job was to overthrow the Roman government at whatever cost. If they had to assassinate people, they were going to do that. If they had to incite a riot, they were going to do that. If they had to give up their very own lives, they were going to do that. But they were zealous. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Simon is known as Simon the Zealot, right? And so this idea of being zealous comes from that thought that, listen, there's nothing that's going to stop me. And he says, be zealous for what is good. In other words, let's live our lives the way God's word tells us to live our lives and let's not let any of these things get in the way. And if we can do that, what do we have to be afraid of? And what does that zeal look like? Look at verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, let's keep first things first. None of this stuff that Peter is calling us to do is possible unless we keep one thing absolutely straight. Jesus is Lord. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify, set aside, or give him his position. Give Christ the throne of your heart, he's saying. Give him as position, and he is not just a buddy. He is not just a pal. He is not just a comforter, and he is not just a savior, although he's all of those things. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And there are many people who will not acknowledge his lordship, but it doesn't change the fact that he is in fact lord. And he says, so if you're going to call him lord, give him his rightful position as the lord of your life. Now let me just stop here and make an important point. Most of us who are watching online or attending here this morning Uh, most of us are probably those who believe that there is a God. And and if if you've been in any kind of Bible-believing church, if you've had good Bible teaching, then you go beyond believing that there is a God, and you believe that Jesus is God, the one and only God, the way, the truth, and the life, right? We believe that. So what? 
If you read the book of James, James warns us not to put any stock in the fact that we happen to agree with the biblical claim that Jesus is God. He says, even the demons believe and they're shaking in their boots because of it. See, the demons, they know for sure who Jesus is. They have been in his presence. I don't know if we all know this, but, but demons are nothing other than angels who are created to worship God, who are in the presence of God, who rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven along with Lucifer. And so demons believe, believe me, when it comes to your belief, the demons have got you covered. Demons believe better than you do. So James says, so you believe. So What? Even the demons believe and shudder. So when it comes to faith, what's the difference between a demon and a Christian? I know some people who would say absolutely nothing. (laughs) But what does the Bible say? What is the difference between a demon and a Christian? A demon believes that Jesus is God. A Christian has made him Lord of his life. That's the difference. For the born-again believer, Christ is king. So Peter tells us to give Christ his rightful place as our king of kings and lord of lords. Remember, there is a God and I'm not him. Remember, I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. And the price was extremely high. It was the blood of the spotless lamb of God. And remember this, every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will eventually confess that he is Lord. So why don't we make sure we're doing that now? That's what Peter's telling us. And that's what these last couple of sermons have been about. When Jesus is truly Lord of your life, you're zealous for him, zealous for his honor, zealous for his glory, for his fame, for his praise. And yes, when you're zealous for God like that, it makes you weird, makes you stand out in our culture. And that can be scary because people are not all going to understand that. And people are going to want to reject you because they reject your message. And people are going to come at you with arguments and questions that you may not feel ready to answer. And so what a lot of us do is we just keep our mouth shut. A lot of us just keep a low profile because the last thing I need to do is get into a debate with somebody who asks me something about carbon dating or the age of the earth or what happened to the dinosaurs, and I don't know the answer to those questions, so I I think I'll just keep my mouth shut. Or worse yet, I might know answers to those questions, but they've been watching me live. And when you compare how I live compared to what the gospel says, I'd rather just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to come across as a hypocrite and maybe unpreach the gospel because of the way that I'm living. Peter says, listen, don't be intimidated by any of that. Remember who your Lord is. When people mock your faith because it doesn't make sense to them, Remember who your Lord is. When, when people shun you because you no longer embrace a lifestyle that you used to embrace along with them. When, when people attack you 
And when people um, slander your name and, and mock your faith in their, in their social media posts, Peter says, remember who your Lord is. If God is for us, who can stand against us? But it, it doesn't stop there. He also says that we need to be ready to make a defense. We need to be ready to make a defense. And, and, and that word defense, the Greek word translated as defense, might be different in your Bible. In my translation, it says defense. Always be ready to make a defense. It, it means um, to give an answer, to offer an explanation. Always be ready to explain, he says, to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Now, I want to explain this carefully because I think there can be some confusion here. There's an excellent book. It's been out like 30 years. Uh, I pulled it off my shelf this morning to show it to you. This is a great book by Josh McDowell. It's called A Ready Defense. Maybe you've heard of this. It's big. It's got a lot of pages, and the print is small. And you know what it is? It's just cover to cover arguments that people make against the existence of Jesus, arguments that people make against the resurrection, arguments that people make against the historical accuracy of the Bible, and what the truth is. So this is how you, uh, you make a defense, he says, against those kinds of arguments. It's an excellent book, written 30 years ago, and so it's a little outdated because the arguments keep evolving. I recommend this book. There's another book that is much more recent, and I don't have it with me because um, I have a digital copy instead of a paper copy, but it's, it's written by Pastor Mark Clark, and it's called The Problem of God. And if you're interested in these issues at all, I highly recommend picking up Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God, because in that, he actually addresses a number of the false arguments that have evolved in the last 10 years or so that people take to be truth, even though they're not. And so he gives us this. We got, we got books that we can read. There are websites we can go to. There's all kinds of ways that we can go to go, hey, how, is my faith really reasonable? Does, does my faith really hold up to historical accuracy? It, did Jesus ever really walk the earth? Did he ever really die on the cross? Did he ever really raise from the dead? Because if he didn't, the scriptures themselves tell us, if he didn't, then we are of all men most to be pitied because we're wasting our time we're wasting our lives worshiping a God who doesn't exist. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if in fact that bloody cross paid the price for our sin, if in fact that tomb is empty even to this day, if in fact Jesus is alive and well and living in our hearts, then we are of all men most blessed. So we need to understand, am I just, is this a pipe dream? Guys, let me tell you something as Christians. I'm way off my notes, sorry. Let me tell you something. Um, never be afraid of the truth. Whatever the truth is, we want to know the truth. Like, I'm not interested in just confirming my own religious ideas. If I'm wrong about Jesus, I want to find out right now. Because I'm telling you, I put every one of my eggs in that Jesus basket. So I'm counting on him being who he says he is. And if he's not who he says he is, I want to know that. But if he is who he says he is, I want to share it with those who don't know that. 
So we don't have to be afraid of arguments. We don't have to be afraid of research. We don't have to be afraid of our own doubts. We don't have to be afraid of our own questions, the things that we don't understand. We don't have to be afraid of any of that. We want the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. He's, he's not asking us to ignore truth. And so he tells us to be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within us. I highly recommend books like that. But as helpful as books are, we need to remember that we are not on the college debate team, okay? One of the problems with the way some of us as Christians share the gospel is that we are out to win an argument. Jesus was never out to win the argument. He was out to win the hearts of people. And so we're not on the college debate team. And while there are these rare examples of somebody who completely devoid of Christian relationships, like he's flipping through the TV channels, saw some preacher presenting the gospel and, and was touched by the Holy Spirit and gave his life to Christ, that's an extremely rare example. There are rare examples of those people who have picked up like a Bible track that somebody left at a restaurant and, and they picked it up and they read it and they, and they were convicted of their sin and they gave their life to Christ. That happens. But 99% of the people who come to know Jesus do so because they know a Christian who knows Jesus and because that Christian loves them. And because that Christian's life is being transformed and they can see it and they long for what that person has. So we're not here to win debates. The goal is not to be able to out-argue someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. The goal is to present Christ in such a way that those who are in the darkness may actually come to see the light and embrace Jesus in their own lives. So Peter tells us, not to print out a bunch of tracts, not to, not to provoke people with smart aleck remarks on our Facebook page. He tells us to be ready to explain and pay attention to these words. Be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks. What a strange concept. That someone simply by observing my life, would ask. We're, we're supposed to give an explanation to anyone who asks us to explain the hope that drives our lives. And, and so I'm not saying that we can never start a conversation about Jesus. I'm not saying that there's never an appropriate time to offer someone who's not asking some counsel about the word of God, but I am saying the general process that Peter is telling us to take is to live with people in such a way that they will want what we obviously have, and they don't. So Peter doesn't tell us to do it with tracks and Facebook posts. He tells us to be ready to explain to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that fills our lives. And guys, we live in a world that is starving for hope. When they see it, they move to it. So we're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And as we do that, 
people are going to notice a difference in us. And, and we're, we're to love those, even those who persecute us. And when we do that, people are going to notice the difference. And as, as we carry on the ministry of Christ to the poor and to the hurting and to the sick and to people who have nothing to give us in return, people are going to notice that in us and they're gonna scratch their heads and go, what is it about you that makes you so different? As we continue to walk in the hope that this world is starving for in their own lives, because Jesus has secured our eternity, people are gonna notice the difference in us. And some of them just might ask why we have so much joy. Some of them might just ask, why do you have so much hope? Some of them might just ask, how can you be so certain that God's got your back? Some of them may wonder, how could you be so loving when everybody seems to be so unloving? And we need to be ready to explain to them that as the great hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? We need to be ready to explain that Jesus is alive and well and living in us and that we're experiencing that life. We need to be ready to tell them about the way he's changing my life, about, about how he's giving me purpose, how he's giving me joy, how he's giving my life meaning and value and significance. We're not called to do it as those who are trying to win an argument or embarrass our opponent. They're not our opponent. They're people for whom Christ died. We're commanded to give an ex explanation with gentleness and reverence. And still, not everybody's gonna understand. And still, we, we may have to suffer some level of persecution because of our faith, but we can endure that because of the hope that is within us. Let's go back, verse 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You, you may be called a hypocrite. You may be slandered online. You may lose some friends because of the hope that is within you. That's okay. By God's grace, he will willingly bring you through that suffering. But let's make sure that if we're being rejected, it is because Christ is an offense, not because we're an offense. And so many people I talk to who I want to share the love of Jesus with have stories to tell me about how they have been offended by religious folks. Let's let the gospel be the stumbling block or the pathway to grace. Let's not be the stumbling block ourselves. Let it not be because we lack kindness. Let it not be because we lack respect. And we've been talking about this now, several verses. He, he even talked about how we're supposed to respect those 
in authority over us, that boss that everybody complains about in the break room and how we're supposed to respect that person, how, how we're supposed to respect even the governing authorities, not necessarily because we agree with them or even appreciate their, their character, but because the Lord has placed them in that place in our lives and we're supposed to have that submissive attitude. And guys, I'm just telling you that, that I see it all the time. Christians who are arguing on political points without any respect, without any gentleness, without any reverence. Christians who are arguing on social matters without any respect or reverence or gentleness. Christians who are arguing philosophical and religious arguments without any respect or gentleness and reverence. And guys, it's not working. Our nation is moving further from God, not closer. Maybe we need to get back to the word where he says that we are to show our love to people and be willing to give an explanation for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. So before you hit enter on that next social media post, ask yourself, is this gentle and respectful? And if not, really consider whether it ought to be what you're doing. The next time that you're in a debate with somebody who just loves to push your buttons because they're a, an atheist or a secular humanist or whatever, and they just love to get you riled up, ask yourselves, am I showing gentleness and respect while I give an explanation for the hope that is within me? I have friends who are staunch, angry atheists. Who, who's, who's like um, motto in life is, there is no God and I hate him. <laughs> right? People, people I love who feel this way. They're mad. They, they don't want to admit that they're mad at God, but they're mad at something and they want to take it out on God. And, and the, the easiest thing for me to do is... Take, make use of all my Bible knowledge. Make use of all my historical knowledge. Make use of my rather extensive educational background and explain to them how they're wrong about everything that they think. But you know what? When I don't do that and I keep loving them and then they find themselves in a hospital or they find themselves with a child who is near death, or they find themselves crashing in their career, and I say, I'd love to pray for you. I've never had one of them say no. With gentleness and reverence, with respect and kindness, upholding the dignity of the person we're talking to. Let's make sure we're not the stumbling block. And some of you are sitting here going, well, I get that, but I, I still, like, I don't have those answers. I, I don't know how to give this explanation. I'm not even good with words. I, I really don't think God's going to use me in this way. Or maybe I've messed up this opportunity so many times, God's going to quit giving me this opportunity. Some of us are sitting here going, yeah, I still, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't think God's going to use me in this way. I think I'm not qualified to speak for Jesus. 
I've blown too many opportunities in the past. Remember Peter? Remember Peter, the guy who failed the test while Jesus was staring him in the face? Remember Peter who swore he would never deny Christ and did it three times in about 15 minutes? Well, his track record got better. Jesus restored him in John 21. In Acts chapter two, in the day of Pentecost, crazy stuff was happening. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon the church. People were speaking in languages they had never learned. People are hearing the gospel in all these languages. And somebody goes, wow, these people are drunk. And Peter stood up and he goes, guys, look at your eye watch or whatever they call this thing. (laughs) He said, guys, it's nine in the morning. These people are not drunk. This is what the scripture told us would happen in Joel. Joel, how many of you read Joel lately? (laughs) He stood up and he was ready to give an explanation for the hope that was within him. And from Joel, he explained how this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came because you people killed Jesus and he's inviting you to have eternal life. And 3,000 people were swept into the kingdom that day. That's Acts chapter two. Acts chapter three, they're on their way to worship in the temple and they see this guy and he's crippled and he's begging, he's been there for years and he's asking for money and they say, listen, we don't have any money but what we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Jesus Christ the Nazarene stand up and walk and the dude stands up and he doesn't walk he leaps and dances and sings all around the temple courtyard makes a huge scene draws a crowd and everybody goes wait a minute isn't this the cripple guy we've seen sitting here all these years how did you heal him Peter and John and Peter stands up and says Do not think this has anything to do with us. You know who healed him? That Jesus who went to the cross and he explains the gospel and thousands more are swept into the kingdom of God that day. Then we turn the page, we get to Acts chapter four. Peter and John get taken into custody. They stand before the council of Jewish priests. These guys have way more education, way more training, way more power and they begin to question them and what does Peter do? Peter explains the gospel to the priests priests and boldly and with gentleness and reverence says, guys, with all due respect, you sent him to the cross and he sent us to you. And he shares the gospel with the council members. And they say, listen, don't speak this word anymore. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they said, with all due respect, gentlemen, we're going to do what God says and not what you say. And they go right outside and they begin to preach the gospel again. And then they get arrested again. And now they're standing trial. And when they're under arrest, Peter once again stands up and shares the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And more people come to know Christ as even the authorities sit dumbfounded because of the hope that is within him. This is the same Peter who failed just shortly before this. When Peter was ready, God used him. Are you ready? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to acknowledge that you alone are God, we're not. 
We confess that there's so much we don't understand, that even we who, who love you have doubts and questions and concerns. There are things we're not sure about. We, we don't know how to give an answer. But we're reminded that you said to your disciples that you would give them the words when the time came so they should be ready. Lord, make us ready. Let us be people who love like you love. Let us be people who care like you care. Let us be people who share as you shared the way, the truth, and the life. As we approach this Easter season and the focus comes to the cross and the focus comes to the empty tomb, use us as vessels that they may see the hope that is within us and be ready to hear the explanation that we give. Make us ready and willing to give an explanation for the hope that is in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name.